In May 2004, Joel and Ethan Cohen spent their spring break, as they often do, at the Cannes Film Festival, premiering their latest picture. The Lady Killers, an unfortunate remake of Alexander McKendrick's 1955 classic, screened in competition. Unusually for the brothers, they left the croisette without any awards, and so flew home to resume their adaptation of James Dickey's novel To the White Sea. Best known for Deliverance, which he had written in 1970, Dickey's 1993 story transposed Homer's Odyssey from the Trojan Wars to World War II. Instead of Ulysses trying to get home to Ithaca, air gunner Sergeant Muldrow is shot down over Japan and has to secret his way through hostile territory in order to make it back home to Alaska. The project just might have made a caustic companion piece to the Coen's earlier reimagining of the Odyssey, O Brother Where Art Thou, but the difficulties in bringing Dickie's savage, near-dialogue-free novel to the screen are proven by the fact that the project never made it beyond the page. Instead, the brothers switched their attention to Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel, No Country for Old Men. Here is Joel Cohen on The Charlie Rose Show in November 2007, explaining why the brothers chose McCarthy's tale of crime and punishment. Well, it didn't, we didn't actually choose it. Uh, it was, it was it's sent to us by Scott Rudin in Galleys about a year before it was published, I guess. Mm. We each read a number of his novels before just for pleasure, not with the idea of thinking about them as movies, but this one, it's much pulpier than his other novels. At least it is initially, you know, the first three quarters sort of move along like a thriller. And then, you know, it takes a turn, which was just got us more interested. That turn is the sudden murder of the story's protagonist, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin. Audiences have been rooting for Moss as soon as he stumbled upon a scene of dead drug dealers and found a suitcase stuffed with $2 million in cash. But then, just as Alfred Hitchcock had dispatched Marion Crane in Psycho, when Moss was flippantly discarded after an hour and a half, it was such a sucker punch, audiences felt not only had they lost their man, the story had lost its momentum, and so what had been a gripping plot sputtered to an anti-climax. So steeped in genre convention, audiences had been anticipating one final confrontation between Moss and the plot's antagonist, Anton Chigur, played by Javier Bardem. And then, in one last nod to cliché, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, would arrive in and seeing that Moss had killed the evil Chigur, would let Moss go free with the money. All as phony as a $3 bill. As Joel Cohen said, it was Moss's death that transformed the plot from pulp into... what exactly? What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. They ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. It is one thing to obediently follow a plot especially one that delivers such an unexpected turn. But it is quite another to make sure you find a cinematic equivalent to McCarthy's terse literary style. The thing is that while the Coens have long been celebrated as stylists, their style is typified by visual and sonic flourishes. From as early as the opening credits of their very first film, Blood Simple, where the titles are measured out against the lights of oncoming late-night highway traffic, and then, as the rain pours down, the windscreen wipers sweep the titles away, or Barton Fink, where Charlie Meadows' charge down the corridor of the Hotel Earl sets the walls on fire, to O Brother Where Art Thou, where a Ku Klux Klan meeting is choreographed as if it were a Busby Berkeley musical, they have frequently gone beyond the conventional 
and leapt into the idiosyncratic, eccentric and sardonic. Always eager to subvert convention, the Coens often place at the heart of their films an enigma that may or may not signify what the whole enterprise is about. In Miller's Crossing, it's Tom Regan's hat. The Hudsucker Proxy, the giant clock. Fargo, the three cent stamp. The Big Lebowski, the rug. The man who wasn't there, the man who wasn't there. And in No Country for Old Men. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. So the coin, which stands for nothing, represents an emptiness, a void, a moral vacuum, by which I mean chaos. And we get a glimpse of that chaos from as early as the fourth minute. Sheriff, he had some sort of thing on him, like a oxygen tank for emphysema or something, and a hose that run down his sleeve. You got me. Well, you can look at it when you get in. <laughs> yes, sir. I got it under control. This is how the Coen's fashion a cinematic equivalent to McCarthy's literary style. There is a small detail briefly visible beneath the fight that provides just one of several clues as to the level of chaos that will soon threaten everyone in the film. As the deputy struggles to escape Shigura's chokehold, director of photography Roger Deakins frames an overhead shot. We see the two men flaying about on the floor, which is covered with speckled, cement-coloured linoleum tiles. As they fight, the heels of their boots scrape across the surface, leaving a frenzied array of black marks. Then the handcuffs cut through the deputy's throat and blood spurts into the air. Taking the totality of coloured tiles, the seemingly random black boot marks and the spurting blood, we could be looking at a canvas by abstract expressionist painter Jackson Pollock. Pollock created his pictures by pouring, dripping, dribbling, flicking and splattering the paint onto his canvas, resulting in images without any human representation or even a conventional point of focus. Instead, what Pollock visualised was convulsive chaos. It is no coincidence that Pollock created his first drip in 1947 barely two years after the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As the artist said in a 1950 interview, the modern painter cannot express this age, the aeroplane, the atom bomb, the radio, in the old forms of the Renaissance or of any other past culture. Pollock was visualising unprecedented levels of anarchy and possibly global annihilation. Just how well do you know Shigur? What do you want to know? I just want to know your opinion of him in general. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? He's bad enough you called me. Yeah, he's a psychopathic killer, but so what? There's plenty of them around. Originating in McCarthy's novel and reverberating through the Coen's adapted screenplay, it is not just through Deakins' lens that the duo cinematized their theme. It is also through the film's production design delivered by Jess Gonker. No Country for Old Men was the first time Gonker had collaborated with the Coens, and the result was so successful, he has worked on every one of their pictures ever since. But while Deakins alluded to Jackson Pollock, 
Gonker used another abstract expressionist, Mark Rothko, as his starting point. Which is a paradox because Rothko's paintings are known to convey spiritual serenity, not chaos. What Gonker did was focus on the large colour fields that dominate Rothko's canvases and then transpose them onto the landscape of West Texas. That way, he saw the desert scrub not as an empty plain, but rather negative space. Gonker achieved this by taking photographs of the horizon and then turning them upside down, so he focused on the silhouettes rather than the sky. Which results in some very striking images, not just for the exteriors. Think of the drug dealer's truck pulling up onto the crest of the hill in the early dawn, but also indoors. Think of the air duct in the Del Rio Motel, the corridor in the Eagle Hotel, and the reflections of the blank television screens that appear throughout the story. But it is not just what we see that conveys chaos and emptiness. It is also what we hear. And just as Gonker's production design embraced negative space, it is the prevalence of silence that accentuates the sounds and the natural sounds that create the film's unconventional score. Carter Burwell has collaborated on all but two of the Coen's films ever since Blood Simple. And here he is in 2015, speaking on a podcast for the Dolby Institute Soundworks. Obviously there are traditions of how music can increase tension, but when music came in, all it did was it told you, it reminded you, oh, it's a film. And you would relax a little bit. So I you know, eliminated different possibilities. What, what is causing this to happen? But honestly, the moment you noticed it was music, you thought, oh, it's a film. The solution that I came up with in the end was to have what are called completely steady state sounds. They don't have a beginning and they don't have an end. Um, things like sine waves. And um, I would just fade them in, typically under wind or car sound. And we would pitch the wind and the car sounds and the music together. But it's, it's designed in that way. The technical term is musique concrète. Dating from the 1940s, the music is composed using recorded sounds as raw material. The method lies in the assemblage of various natural sounds recorded on tape or originally on discs to produce a montage of sound. Which brings us to another of the Cohen's near constant collaborators, sound designer Skip Leavesay. Having first worked with them on Blood Simple, it was in fact Leavesay who made the initial contact with Burwell. They knew each other from the music scene in New York, where Leavesay played bass guitar and Burwell the keyboards. And that, I think, is crucial to understanding the soundscape in the Coen's film. Everything is music. When there is no music in the conventional understanding of the word, there is still a tonality and rhythm to the sounds you hear. Sounds that stand in for the score. And then there is a silence that stands in for the sound. There just ain't no way. When Llewellyn discovers the tracking device in the suitcase, we see the light flashing silently. But we already know what it sounds like. We heard it when Shigur tracked Llewellyn to the motel in Del Rio. Then we hear a brief commotion from downstairs in the lobby. Llewellyn calls the front desk, but there is no answer. The light on the tracking device continues to flash. Llewellyn gets up from the bed and kneels down on the floor by the door to listen if anyone is approaching. All he hears is this. Yes, emptiness. The void, the moral vacuum, 
the chaos is approaching. Another example, which I think is yet even more expressive, is when Shigur torments the gas station owner with the coin toss. Shigur has been eating cashew nuts, and as he finishes them, he scrunches the packet onto the counter. And then it unravels, expressing Shigur's state of mind, stretching, creaking, trying to find any excuse to murder the owner. Here are Leavesley and Burwell from the same podcast. People generally work in a vacuum, basically. Uh, it's not uncommon for the film score to be composed and recorded and mixed without listening to any of the other stuff that's going That's, that's uh, absolutely right. Yeah. And um, I remember when sound went digital, um, everyone was very excited that you could, in a way, you could just have all the faders up. You know, it was technically possible to, to do that. and. Um, I still hear a lot of very noisy mixes where they, you know, basically someone has decided, has decided not to decide what should be uh, featured. When the film was released in November 2007, critics uniformly noted how faithful the Coens were to McCarthy's novel. Which is more than curious because even the most cursory of comparisons would show that they left out and changed an awful lot. So much in fact that you'd be forgiven for doubting that those same critics had actually read the book. To begin, there were no less than 13 chapters where Sheriff Etan Bell relates with increasing resignation the loss of civility and order. These the Coens whittle down to Bell's monologue that opens the film, some ruminations he delivers to Carla Jean, played by Kelly MacDonald, and finally, the dream which he relates at the end to his wife, Loretta, played by Tess Harper. Then I woke up. In addition, McCarthy provided Shigur with several lengthy discussions on the essence of a coin. There he is so loquacious, he sounds as if he were quoting phenomenologist Edmund Husserl. You see the problem? To separate the act from the thing? As if the parts of some moment in history might be interchangeable with the part of some other moment. How could that be? Well, it's just a coin. And then there's the extended sequence where Llewellyn picks up a teenage girl hitchhiking her way to what she thinks will be a better life. Or at least one better than the life she is fleeing. But ultimately, it only leads her to being gunned down with Llewellyn. All of which tells us one thing. The Coen's adaptation was so true to the novel's spirit, the changes in detail were beguiling enough to suggest no changes had been made at all. The truth is, the film is much tighter than the novel. And for all McCarthy's genre subversion, a lot more plausible. For instance, when Shigur traces Llewellyn to the Eagle Hotel, rather than he stalking quietly down the corridor and stopping outside Llewellyn's door, from where they begin their gun battle, McCarthy contrives the event by having Shigur murder the desk manager, locate Llewellyn's room number and keys, and then sneak into Llewellyn's room. But Llewellyn, hiding in the shadows, takes Shigur by surprise and leads him at gunpoint down the corridor where Llewellyn decides it would be a good idea to turn and run. And that is when McCarthy begins the gun battle. The Coens alter other sequences, the most effective coming when Sheriff Bell revisits the heart of Texas Motel in El Paso, where Llewellyn was murdered. Unbeknownst to him, waiting in the shadows is Shigur, his high-powered shotgun at the ready. Sheriff Bell sees the air vent has been removed and is confused but we know that it means that Shigur has already found and retrieved the money. So why is he still there? In expectation of Carla Jean's possible arrival. Which explains ultimately 
why Shigur does not kill the sheriff. In other words, the Coens were graciously unfaithful to McCarthy's original. In May 2007, the Coens returned to Cannes to premiere No Country for Old Men. Superb as the film is, the brothers experienced an unexpected plot turn of their own and left the Quasette empty-handed. However, come February 2008, the Academy in Los Angeles honoured them with Oscars for Best Picture, Director and Screenplay Adaptation. How's that for an anticlimax? climax